Peabody by Rosemary Wills. Peabody had never been out of his big yellow box until Annie's birthday. It's a real bear, shouted Annie. Want it, said Annie's brother Robert. Peabody bites, said Annie. Annie gave a private party for Peabody because it was his birthday too. Warmly dressed in one of Robert's old shirts, Peabody spent the night on Annie's pillow. Pillow. How lucky I am to be real, he said. How happy I am to be Annie's. Before she went to school, Annie always put Peabody on her highest shelf. He made many new friends. When Robert sneaked in and peeked, Peabody growled at him. Peabody bites, said Robert. Annie taught Peabody how to ski on a pair of popsicle sticks. Snow got on his ears, but the exercise and a woolen scarf kept him warm. After a day on the slopes, Peabody and Annie sipped hot chocolate with marshmallows and toasted their feet by the fire. In April, they started a garden with pansies and dandelions. The garden fence was made of bright red wool. That's an electric fence, Robert. Don't touch it, said Annie. In July, Peabody visited the shore with Annie and her family. Salty breezes from the seas tickled his nose. Annie took him boating in the overturned shell of a horseshoe crab. His sun umbrella came all the way from China. That autumn, Peabody told all his friends on the shelf about the seashore far away. He showed them the shells he had collected there. A thousand leaves fell to the ground in the winter wind. Peabody's ears had lost some pinkness from skiing and wet snow. He still had summer sand between his toes and dried spring mud in his fur, but Annie said he wasn't wearing out. He was wearing in. On their birthday, Peabody was too excited to sleep. He watched the birthday moon rise and set over the snow. Deep in the woods, an owl hooted a song. Peabody sang back while Annie slept. Blue-white starlight filled Annie's room. In it, Peabody danced a birthday dance. In the morning, the first present Annie opened was Rita. By turning a key somewhere on Rita's body, Rita could be made to talk and walk. She drank real apple juice and sang three different songs. When Robert wanted Rita, Annie made Rita howl like a real baby. That afternoon was perfect for skiing, but they didn't go because Rita was learning to walk across the living room. Rita completely ruined Peabody's birthday party. She would not stop singing. Sharing a bed with Rita was no picnic. During the night, Annie bumped Rita's keys. Good morning, I love you. Good morning, I love you, said Rita. Snowy days came and went, but there was no skiing and no hot chocolate and no fireplace to sit by. Even Peabody's friends were quiet. He had shown them his shells many times, and there was nothing left to talk about. One night, Annie left Peabody on the shelf. He woke up uncomfortable and grouchy. In a week, a cobweb had grown across along his arm and onto the wall. Inside Peabody, there was a great sleepiness. Without Annie's love, Peabody did not feel real. He did not feel alive. At night, the owl hooted and sang from the woods, but Peabody did not sing back. Suddenly, after many weeks of sleep on the shelf, something woke Peabody up. Good morning, I love you. Good morning, I love you, said a voice. It was Rita. Robert had gotten a hold of her. He wound her up and gave her a cup of coffee. After coffee, Robert gave Rita a bath. The minute Rita hit the water, she stopped talking. Rita looked clean and dry when Annie came home, but inside, her batteries and wires were wrecked. Annie wound her up. Rita wouldn't do anything. Peabody held out his arms to Annie. I need you, said Annie. That night, Rita stayed in Robert's crib, and Peabody danced to the music of the spring rain.
I Don't Want to Kiss a Llama by Byron Van Rosenberko. I don't want to kiss a llama, though they're cute, I must admit. But when they pucker up, it's because they're going to spit. I don't want to kiss a giraffe. They stand much too tall, you see. I'd have to stand on tiptoes just to kiss one on the knee. I'd never kiss an elephant. Its skin is much too tough. Besides, its trunk gets in the way, and my lips aren't long enough. I wouldn't kiss a penguin on its orange-colored beak. I'm afraid it might take out an eye when it pecked me on the cheek. But I would kiss a llama, penguin, or giraffe. I'd even kiss an elephant if it would make you laugh. Yes, I would give a kiss to each animal in the zoo, but I'd rather say them all and give every one to you. My mother is the most beautiful woman in the world. Once upon a time, long, long ago, when the harvest season had come again in the Ukraine, the villagers were all busy cutting and gathering the wheat. For this is the land from which most Russians get the flour for their bread. Marfa and Ivan went to the field early each day, as did all their children. There they stayed until sundown. Varya was Marfa and Ivan's youngest little girl, six years old. When everyone went to the fields in harvest time, Varya went too. Her legs were so short she had to run and skip to keep up with her mother's and father's long steps. Varachka, you are a little slowpoke, her father said to her. Then laughing loudly, he swung her up on his shoulder where she had to hold tight to his neck, for his arms were full carrying the day's lunch and the long scythe to cut the wheat. In the field, in the long even rows between the thick wheat, Varya knew just what she must do. First, she must stay at least 20 or 30 paces behind her father, who now looked took even greater and bigger steps so that he might have plenty of room to swing wide the newly sharpened scythe. Stand back, Varyachka, mind the scythe, her father warned. Swish, swish, swish went his even strokes, and down came the wheat faster and faster as he made his great strides. Soon Marfa began to follow Ivan. She gathered the wheat in sheaves or bunches, just big enough to bind together with a strand of braided wheat. Varya, eager to be useful, helped gather the wheat and held each bunch while her mother tied it. When three sheaves were tied, they were stacked against each other in a little pyramid. Careful, Varyachka, her mother cautioned, the wheat side up. After a while, instead of long rows of wheat, there were long rows of sheaves standing stiffly. Sometimes Varya forgot to follow her mother. On very hot days, she stopped to rest on the warm ground and let her tired, bare feet and toes tickle the dark, moist earth. A while later, she ran and caught up with her mother, and then her mother hugged her to her and swiped her, wiped her dripping face. Even though her mother's arms and bosom were hot and damp, they felt cool and restful to Varya. Day after day, Ivan, Marfa, and Varya went to the field until all the wheat was cut and stacked and none was left growing in the ground. Then a big wagon came, and everybody pitched the wheat up to the driver, who packed it in solidly and carefully and took it to the threshing barn. When the harvest was over, Ivan, Marfa, Varya, and everyone in the village prepared for the feast day. And what a feast they had. The Russian sun shines with a warm glow that makes Russia's wheat the most nourishing in the world, and her fruits and vegetables the most delicious that ever grew. The cherries are the reddest, largest, and juiciest. The apples, the firmest and crunchiest to the teeth. The cucumbers, the most plentiful on the vine. As for the watermelons, only someone who has seen a Ukrainian watermelon really knows what watermelons should be. 
The villagers worked tirelessly throughout the summer. Their muscles ached, but there was a song in their hearts, and there were merry chuckles on their lips. Hard work produced a rich harvest. There would be wheat for everybody. It was time then for a grand celebration. When Varya was five years old, a year ago, she was allowed to share in the excitement of preparing the feast. That summer, she helped her mother bake the little cakes, plated flat dough stuffed with meat or cabbage. Pirochki, they were called. When all the cakes were rolled out, Varya's mother said, and for you, Varyachka, a special one, a pirochok, that meant in Russian, a darling little cake. It also meant that Harvest Day was a holiday and that Varya's busy mother could take the time to bake a special cake for her. Besides the pirochki, Varya and her mother brought blini to the fest. These are flat, rolled, brown little pancakes filled almost to bursting with jelly or cheese. They are eaten smothered with thick cream or plain held between sticky fingers. Varya had taken her turn at rolling out the dough for the pirochki, for the thinner the dough, the lighter the pirochki. This was one of the housewifely lessons she had to master. The feast always took place after church in the very heart of the village. Varya came with her parents. Everybody was there. The grandmothers, whom Russians call babushka, and who always wear a gay kerchief tied below their chin. The mothers with babies in their arms, the strong, broad-shouldered fathers, and the many children, all with roses in their cheeks. Tolia, the village leader, played the accordion. The minute his music started, everybody's feet began to keep time. The boys whistled, stamped their feet, and everybody clapped their hands. Tolia stood in the center, all eyes on him. He danced a jigging step or two, his fingers never leaving the accordion, and shouted, Too quiet, my friends, a little more nonsense, a little more noise, a few more smiles. Sing, sing, my friends, this is a holiday. Come, everyone on their feet, we must have a dance. Men, women, and children joined in the singing as Tolia swung his accordion into rollicking dance tunes. The men wore polished, knee-high, heavy boots, but they danced as if their feet were bare. As the music grew faster and faster, their feet grew lighter and nimbler. It was as if they and their partners had wings that carried them swiftly by those who were watching. To Varda, it seemed like the older girls' braids flew by like braids in the wind, birds in the wind. The girls wore lots of petticoats under a skirt so wide you could not tell where it began or where it ended. Around their necks were many strings of beads that shone as bright as a Christmas tree, all tied with trailing strings of many-colored ribbons. Some of the little girls were dressed almost as grandly, but not Varya, nor most of them. Varya kept asking her mother, when am I going to have a beautiful dance costume with lots of beads? And Varya's mother would say, when you're a grown-up young lady, Varya. Always it seemed to Varya she just could not wait until she was grown up. Varya was an impatient little girl. Her impatience was like a teasing toothache. Today it was so great she felt choked as if she'd swallowed a whole watermelon. For today was the last day for gathering the wheat. By evening, all the wheat would be cut, stacked in pyramids, and waiting for the wagon to take it to the threshing barn. Tomorrow, another wonderful feast day and celebration would come around again. Varya could hardly wait for the feast day to begin. Bright and early, Marfa, Ivan, and Varya went to the wheat field. We must get to it, wind even, warned Ivan. This is our last day to get the wheat in. It has been a good crop, Ivan, hasn't it? asked Marfa. Indeed, yes, Ivan answered heartily, and it will mean a good warm winter with plenty to eat. We have much to be thankful for. Marfa and Ivan worked quicker and harder than ever. They did not seem to notice the hot sun. The wheat swished almost savagely as it came rushing down. But to Varya, the day seemed the longest she'd ever lived. 
The sun seemed hotter than any other day, and her feet seemed almost too heavy to lift. Varya peered into the next row of wheat, which was not yet cut. There it was cool and pleasant, and the sun did not bear down with its almost unbearable heat. Varya moved in just a little further to surround herself with that blessed coolness. How lucky I am, she thought, to be able to hide away from the hot sun. I will do this just for a few minutes. Surely Mamochka will not mind if I do not help her all the day. Soon Varya grew sleepy, for in so cool a place one could curl up and be very quiet and comfortable. When Varya woke, she jumped to her feet and started to run toward her mother. But her mother was nowhere in sight. Varya called, Mama, Mama, Mamochka, but there was no answer. Sometimes her mother got ahead of her and was so busy with her work she did not hear. Maybe if I run along the row, I will catch up with you, Varya thought. She ran and ran, and soon she was out of breath, but nowhere could she see her mother. Maybe I've gone in the wrong direction, she said to herself. So she ran the other way. But here, too, there was no trace of her mother. Varya was alone in the wheat fields, where she could see nothing but tall pyramids of wheat towering above her. When she called out, her voice brought no response, no help. Overhead, the sun was not so bright as it had been. Varya knew that soon it would be night and that she must find her mother. Varya cut through the last of the wheat that had not yet been cut, breaking her own pathway, which bent and hurt the wheat. She would not have done this had she not been frightened. When it was almost dark, Varya stumbled into a clearing where several men and women had paused to gossip after the day's work. It took her only a second to see that these were strangers and that neither her mother nor father were among them. The little girl stared ahead of her, not knowing what to do. One of the men spied her and said in a booming voice, which she thought was friendly, Look what we have here! Everyone turned to Varya. She was sorry that with so many strangers looking at her, she had her hair caught back in a tiny braid with a bit of string, and that she was wearing only her oldest, most faded dress. Surely, too, by now her face and hands must be as streaked with dirt as were her legs and dress. This made her burst into tears. Poor little thing, cried one of the women, putting her arms around Varya. She's lost. But this sympathy and the strange voices made Varya want her mother all the more. She could not help crying. We must know her name and the name of her mother and father. Then we can unite them, said the women. Little girl, little girl, they said, what is your name? What is your mother's and father's name? But Varya was too unhappy to speak. Finally, because her longing for her mother was so great, she sobbed out, my mother is the most beautiful woman in the world. All the men and women smiled. The tallest man, Kolya, clapped his hands and laughingly said, Now we have something to go on. This was long, long ago when there were no telephones and no automobiles. If people wanted to see each other or carry a message, they went on their two feet. From every direction, friendly, good-hearted boys ran to village homes with orders to bring back the beautiful women. Bring Katya, Manya, Vera, Nadja, said the tall man, Golia, to one boy. And don't forget the beauty Lisa, he called just still another boy. The women came running. These were orders from Kolya, the village leader. Also, the mothers who had left the fields early to get supper for their families thought perhaps this was indeed their child who was lost. As each beautiful woman came rushing up, blushing and proud that she had been so chosen, Kolya would say to her, We have a little lost one here. Stand back, everyone, while the little one tells us if this is her mother. The mothers laughed and pushed and called to Kolya, You big tease. What about asking each mother if this is her child? We know our children. To Varya, this was very serious, for she was lost and she was desperate without her mother. As she looked at each strange woman, Varya shook her head in disappointment and sobbed harder. Soon, every known beauty from far and near, 
from distances much further than a child could have strayed, had come and gone. Not one of them was Varya's mother. The villagers were really worried. They shook their heads. Kolya spoke for them. One of us will have to take the little one home for the night. Tomorrow may bring fresh wisdom to guide us. Just then, a breathless, excited woman came puffing up to the crowd. Her face was big and broad, her body even larger. Her eyes were pale little slits beneath a great lump of a nose. The mouth was almost toothless. Even as a young girl, everyone had said, a homely girl like Marfa is lucky to get a husband like Ivan. Varachka, cried this woman. Mamochka, cried the little girl, and they fell into each other's arms. Varya cuddled into that ample and familiar bosom. The smile Varya had longed for was once again shining upon her. All the villagers smiled thankfully when Varya looked up from her mother's shoulder and said with joy, This is my mother! I told you my mother's the most beautiful woman in the world! The group of friends and neighbors, too, beamed upon each other as Kolya repeated the proverb so well known to them, a proverb which little Varya had just proved. We do not love people because they are beautiful, but they seem beautiful to us because we love them. Next day was the feast day. In the evening, Varya sat cuddled in her mother's lap and happily watched the dancing. As the music played, she brought her mother's head close to her own and whispered, Mamuchu, the dancers, they are so beautiful. I love to watch them. Her mother patted Varya and whispered back, This is the harvest feast day. Everyone is wearing their best clothes and their best smile. Of course it is fun to watch them. Varya was so happy and felt so safe she was able to speak of the dark, awful moments when she was lost. Mamochka, she said haltingly as if she could not find the right words. Some of the children have teased me. They laughed about my calling you the most beautiful woman in the world. They see the angels, the Tsarina, the princesses, the queens, the rich, their own mothers are the most beautiful. One of them is the most beautiful woman in the world. Mamochka, Varya went on, I know that some of those women have more beads than you. Some have bigger and wider skirts. Maybe some of them can sing and dance better than you can. But Mamochka, to me, you are the most beautiful woman in the world. Varya's mother, Marfa, kissed her, smiled happily and said, Some people, Varachka, see only with their eyes alone. Others see with their hearts, too. I am grateful and lucky that you see with your heart as well as with your eyes. George and Martha Rise and Shine, about two fine friends. Story number one, The Fibber. One day, George wanted to impress Martha. I used to be a champion jumper, he said. Martha raised an eyebrow. And, said George, I used to be a wicked pirate. Hmm, said Martha. George tried harder. Once I was even a famous snake charmer. Oh, good, he said Martha. Martha went to the closet and got out Sam. Here's a snake for you to charm. cried George, and he jumped right out of his chair. It's only a toy stuffed snake, said Martha. I'm surprised a famous snake charmer is such a scaredy cat. I told some fibs, said George. For shame, said Martha. But you can see what a good jumper I am, said George. That's true, said Martha. Story number two, the experiment. Martha was in her laboratory. What are you doing, asked George. I'm studying fleas, said Martha. Cute little critter, said George. You don't understand, said Martha. This is serious. This is science. The next day, George noticed that Martha was scratching a lot. She looked uncomfortable. 
George bought Martha some special soap. After her shower, Martha felt much better. I think I'll stop studying fleas, said Martha. Good idea, said George. I think I'll study bees instead, said Martha. Oh, dear, said George. Story number three, the picnic. One Saturday morning, George wanted to sleep late. I love sleeping late, said George. But Martha had other ideas. She wanted to go on a picnic. Here she comes, said George to himself. Martha did her best to get George out of bed. Picnic time, sang Martha. But George didn't budge. Martha played a tune on her saxophone. George put little balls of cotton in his ears and pulled up the covers. Martha tickled George's toes. Stop it, said George. Picnic time, sang Martha. But I'm not going on a picnic, said George. Oh, yes, you are, said his friend. Martha had a clever idea. This is such hard work, she said, huffing and puffing. But I'm not going to help, said George. I'm getting tired, said Martha. George had fun on the picnic. I'm so glad we came, said George. But Martha wasn't listening. She had fallen asleep. Story number four, the scary movie. Martha was nervous. I've never been to a scary movie before. Silly goose, said George. Everyone likes scary movies. I hope I don't faint, said Martha. Martha liked the scary movie. This is fun, she giggled. Martha noticed that George was hiding under his seat. I'm looking for my glasses, said George. You don't wear glasses, said Martha. When the movie was over, George was white as a sheet. Hold my hand, said George, said George to Martha. I don't want you to be afraid of walking home. Thank you, said Martha. The last story, The Secret Club. Where are you going, George, asked Martha. I'm going to my secret club, said George. I'll come along, said Martha. Oh, no, said George. It's a secret club. But you can let me in, said Martha. No, I can't, said George, and he went on his way. Martha was furious. When George was inside his secret clubhouse, Martha made a terrible fuss. You let me in, she shouted. No, said George. Yes, yes, cried Martha. No, no, said George. I'm coming in whether you like it or not, cried Martha. When Martha saw the inside of George's clubhouse, she was so ashamed. The Martha Fan Club, George President. You old sweetheart, she said to George. George smiled. I hope you've learned your lesson. I certainly have, said his friend. The Bernstein Bears get stage fright. Most little bears like to play, to show off, read aloud, and to sing. But on a stage in the spotlight, for some, the play's not the thing. On the way to school one day, Sister Bear, Brother Bear, and Cousin Freddy got to talking about an important subject, their teachers. Teacher Bob is tough but fair, said Freddy, who was in the same class as Brother. Brother agreed. How about your teacher, he asked Sister. Is she easy or hard? Teacher Jane isn't easy or hard, Sister said. She's good. Then the bell rang, and the cubs were ready for the school day. The reason Sister thought Teacher Jane was good was because she made things interesting. When they were learning to add and subtract, Teacher Jane set up a pretend store with play money and a toy cash register. It helped the cubs learn, and it was fun. When the class was studying words and ideas, they made posters. That helped them learn, too. And sometimes in reading class, instead of just reading from their books, they acted out the stories. That's what they were doing with Grizzly Stiltskin, the son story of a funny old elf bear who was sure that nobody could ever guess his name. Sister Bear was acting out the part of the miller's daughter who becomes a princess and has to spin straw into gold. They'd come to the part where the princess has one last chance to guess the elf bear's name. 
Ah, good, sir, red sister, in a clear, loud voice. We've come to the end of our guessing game because I say Grizzly Stiltskin is your name. That's when Grizzly Stiltskin flies into a rage, disappears in a puff of smoke, and the princess lives happily ever after. That was very good, class, said Teacher Jane. So good, in fact, that I have a surprise for you. I'm in charge of the school play this year, and guess what? The play is going to be Grizzly Stiltskin, and some of you will have parts in it. Then she gave out the parts. One of them had Sister's name on it. What fun! What excitement! Sister was going to be in the school play on the auditorium stage with scenery and costumes and makeup and everything. It turned out that Brother and Freddie had gotten parts too. Brother was going to be the wood spear who finds out the elf spear's name, and Freddie was going to play the part of Grizzly Stiltskin himself. Who are you going to be, Freddie asked Sister. When Sister, who hadn't even thought to look, turned to her part and said, The Princess. Wow, said Brother and Freddie, that's the main part. Well, how about that, said Papa Bear when he heard the news. My little princess is going to play the part of the princess. Say, we'd better tell Grizzly Gramps and Gran and Uncle Willie and Aunt Min. Calm yourself, dear, said Mama, taking Papa aside. Sister has a lot of work ahead of her, and she doesn't need a lot of fuss and excitement. Hmm, said Papa. You're absolutely right, my dear. Yeah, why all the fuss, said Brother. It's just a dopey old school play. I already know my whole part. Hear me, O princess. I was deep in the forest, and this is what I heard. The princess's firstborn shall be mine. If she had guesses nine times nine, she could not win this guessing game, because Grizzly Stiltskin is my name. See, he said nothing to it. But sister wasn't so sure. She was beginning to feel a little nervous about the whole thing. The next day, when Teacher Jane asked Sister to take a message to the office, Sister decided to take a shortcut through the auditorium. She'd been in the auditorium many times, of course, but she'd never been on the stage. She climbed the steps and looked out over a row of seats. It looked enormous. Then she imagined all the seats filled with everybody in the school and Grizzly Gramps and Grand and Uncle and Willie and Aunt Min. It looked even more enormous. Why the long face, asked Brother on the way home from school. Sister told him she was worried about the play. Relax, he said. There's nothing to it. It's a piece of cake. Well, I can do my part standing on my head. Hear me, O oh princess. Hanging from a branch. Hear me, O oh princess. And from inside a hollow log. Hear me, O oh princess. Cousin Freddie and the gang thought brother was pretty funny, but sister didn't even smile. That evening, sister's worries all came out. Reading a part in class just isn't the same as getting up in front of the whole school. And I have to learn it all by heart, she wailed. How am I ever going to do it? The same way you learn anything else, said Mama, line by line, page by page. Papa and I will help you. Besides, you already know lots of things by heart. The alphabet, dozens of songs and rhymes, the Pledge of Allegiance. Why, well, bet you know enough things by heart to fill a book. You already know the story. All you have to do is learn your part and practice. That's what sister did. She learned her part line by line, page by page, and she practiced. She practiced in her room in front of her toys. Oh, good sir. She practiced in the field in front of her forest friends. We've come to the end of our guessing game. She practiced in front of Mama and Papa because Grizzly Stiltskin is your name. That was wonderful, sweetie, said Papa, applauding. Lecture perfect. Yes, said sister, but practicing in front of my toys and forest friends and you and Mama just isn't the same as getting up on the stage in front of the whole school. How do I practice for that? Sweetie said, Mama, there are some things in life you can't practice. You've just got to do them. But what if I get nervous and scared, she asked. 
Oh, but you will, said Mama. I will, she said. Of course, said Mama. Everybody gets nervous when they have to perform in front of an audience, even famous opera singers and star athletes. But if you know it's natural and you expect to be a little nervous, it really won't bother you that much and you'll do yourself proud. And besides, she added, you'll be having a big rehearsal in the auditorium. That'll help. Now, where's that brother of yours? I've got to finish his costume. I do wish he'd take this thing a little more seriously. Don't worry about him, Mama said, sister. He can do his part standing on his head. The rehearsal did help, but an empty auditorium still wasn't the same as a real live audience. And now at last, the moment had come. The curtain was opening on the Bear Country School's production of Grizzly Stiltskin. And there was Sister all alone on the big stage looking out at the whole school and Grizzly Gramps and Gran and Uncle Willie and Aunt Min. It was a little scary, but it was also very exciting. Then she heard a loud, clear voice saying, I am the miller's daughter and woe is me, for my father has told the king I can spin straw into gold, and in truth I cannot. It took her a split second to realize that the voice was hers. From there on, everything went beautifully. There was one little rough spot near the end when it was time for Brother to do his part. He came on stage in his handsome Woodsbear costume, looked out at the hundreds of eyes staring at him, and completely forgot what he was supposed to say. I can't remember my lines, he whispered. Why don't you try standing on your head, whispered Sister. But then she took pity on him and helped him with his lines. The play ended magnificently with Grizzly Stiltskin flying into a fury and disappearing in a puff of smoke. The applause was loud and long. After the show, Mama and Papa came backstage. Terrific show, said Papa, terrific. Congratulations, said Mama, and a job well done. A piece of cake, said Princess Sister. Corduroy. Corduroy is a bear who once lived in the toy department of a big store. Day after day, he waited with all the other animals and dolls for somebody to come along and take him home. The store was always filled with shoppers buying all sorts of things, but no one ever seemed to want a small bear in green overalls. Then one morning, a little girl stopped and looked straight into Corduroy's bright eyes. <gasps> Mommy, she said, look, there's the very bear I've always wanted. Not today, dear her mother sighed. I've spent too much already. Besides, he doesn't look new. He's lost the button to one of his shoulder straps. Corduroy watched them sadly as they walked away. I didn't know I'd lost a button, he said to himself. Tonight I'll go and see if I can find it. Late that evening, when all the shoppers had gone and the doors were shut and locked, Corduroy climbed carefully down from his shelf and began searching everywhere on the floor for his lost button. Suddenly, he felt the floor moving under him. Quite by accident, he had stepped onto an escalator, and up he went. Could this be a mountain, he wondered? I think I've always wanted to climb a mountain. He stepped off the escalator as it reached the next floor, and there before his eyes was the most amazing sight. Tables and chairs and lamps and sofas and rows and rows of beds. This must be a palace, Corduroy gasped. I guess I've always wanted to live in a palace. He wandered around admiring the furniture. This must be a bed, he said. I've always wanted to sleep in a bed. And up he crawled onto a large, thick mattress. All at once, he saw something small and round. Why, here's my button, he cried. And he tried to pick it up. But like all the other buttons on the mattress, it was tied down tight. He yanked and pulled with both paws until, pop, off came the button. And off the mattress, Corduroy toppled. 
bang into a tall floor lamp. Over it fell with a crash. Cordery didn't know it, but there was someone else awake in the store. The night watchman was going his rounds in the floor above. When he heard the crash, he came dashing down the escalator. Now who in the world did that, he exclaimed. Somebody must be hiding around here. He flashed his light under and over sofas and beds until he came to the biggest bed of all. And there he saw two fuzzy brown ears sticking up from under the cover. Hello, he said. How did you get upstairs? The watchman ticked tucked Corduroy under his arm and carried him down the escalator and set him on the shelf in the toy department with the other animals and dolls. Corduroy was just waking up when the first customers came into the store in the morning, and there looking at him with a wide, warm smile was the same little girl he'd seen only the day before. I'm Lisa, she said, and you're going to be my very own bear. Last night I counted what I've saved in my piggy bank, and my mother said I could bring you home. Shall I put him in a box for you, the sales lady asked. Oh, no, thank you, Lisa answered, and she carried Corduroy in her arms. She ran all the way up four flights of stairs into her family's apartment and straight into her own room. Corduroy blinked. There was a chair and a chest of drawers, and alongside a girl-sized bed stood a little bed just the right size for him. The room was small, nothing like that enormous palace in the department store. This must be home, he said. I know I've always wanted a home. Lisa sat down with corduroy on her lap and began to sew a button on his overalls. I like you the way you are, she said, but you'll be more comfortable with your shoulder strap fastened. You must be a friend, said corduroy. I've always wanted a friend. Me too, said Lisa, and gave him a big hug.